Hello everyone and welcome to After the Final Whistle. I am your host Brad Clear and as you heard in the beginning of this episode, today's episode we're going to be going into NBA free agency, focusing on the first two days of moves, a very action-packed two days with 43 signings, none more impactful than LeBron James signing with the Los Angeles Lakers and on top of that last night DeMarcus Cousins signing a mid-level exception with the Golden State Warriors. We're going to dive deep into that LeBron signing, why he did it, was it the correct move, factors around it, how the Lakers are building their team around him, and how they should continue to do so. And then we'll get into the DeMarcus Cousins signing, why it happened, how it happened. He really had no other option. We'll get into all of that. We'll get into other signings too. We'll talk about the Oklahoma City Thunder retaining Paul George, re-signing Jeremy Grant, and potentially trying to add other players with their high luxury tax bill and payroll combined. Uh, We're going to talk about the Los Angeles Clippers signing Avery Bradley and them moving forward. Uh, We're going to talk about other signings I thought were interesting, like Ed Davis and Mario Hazonia, Trevor Ariza with the Phoenix Suns. Players who are still available in teams with cap space, who would have the ability to sign them, who would fit where, and whatnot. But let's let's just get right into it. LeBron James is now a member of the Los Angeles Lakers, signing a four-year deal for $154 million, with that fourth year being a player option. For me, first off, before I get into analyzing it, I was really disappointed with how it happened. I, um, the last two times LeBron made his big free agency decision, obviously with the decision broadcast in 2010, and... In 2014, with the article with Lee Jenkins, I could tell you where I was, what I was doing, how I found out. It's like one of the most vivid, two most vivid memories I have in my head in my life, which is pretty, in a way, kind of sad. But that's besides the point. I could tell you everything about those. Those were big time moments, whole big hoopla around it. Um... And then this year, you know, I was expecting whether it was him tweeting or posting something on Instagram or a big whole little documentary from Uninterrupted or whatever. I was expecting something pretty cool. And instead, you know, it was Clutch Sports Group tweeted out a press release uh, saying he had signed with the Lakers. And the way I found out was I follow an account on Twitter uh, called Fantasy Labs NBA. And they retweeted, I guess, one of their writers saying LeBron is going to the Lakers, apparently. And at first, I was like, huh? Read the press release. I was expecting it, since it listed all of his accomplishments, to be like a parody thing. But then it said he signed with the Lakers. I looked back at the account. The account had a blue check mark. It was verified. Then Jeff Zilgit uh, tweeted that it was accurate. And then in came all the tweet notifications from Shams, Woj, Mark Stein, and the floodgates opened. And that was that. Sunday at about 8 p.m., when I had actually spent the last hour and a half before that talking up the Sixers as a potential destination because of him having met with them earlier in the day. And after what we saw happen on Friday or Saturday night with him signing with the Lakers, obviously that meeting was just a courtesy meeting. And it was obvious that through all the media talk about it, through how quickly the decision was made, LeBron had the Lakers in mind all along. For all the talk from Brian Windhorst about how it was the Lakers all the way, uh, through the lack of mentioning of any real possibility of him going to a team who was not the Lakers, you know, all along, in my mind, I had thought since last October that the Sixers were the best possible destination for him in a basketball sense. You stay in the East. You have a top 12 player in the league in Joel Embiid. You have a young player who is almost a carbon copy of yourself and Ben Simmons. They were already the fifth best team in the NBA last year. Or fourth, fifth, four, no, fourth, yeah. Fifth best team in the NBA last year. You'd be adding to that group. 
you be in the East, you can make the finals year in, year out. You're going to be declining as they're um, ascending in the league. It's a perfect balance. But obviously, this was more than basketball. And I get it. LeBron has uninterrupted as his media company. He wants to be a big-time media mogul and businessman after his career is over. His family wants to live in Los Angeles. They have two houses there. I get it. And for all of those things that LeBron is interested in on and off the court, what better person is there for him to essentially collaborate with than Magic Johnson? Let's like, compare the two. LeBron James, at worst, is the second-best player of all time. Magic Johnson is, at worst, like the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th best player of all time. All-time greats, Magic, after his career, became one of the most successful businessmen there is, part owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Starbucks, you name it. Fantastically successful. Extremely involved in philanthropic um, endeavors, giving back to the community, stuff like that. LeBron James is the same way. He is going to be and is already extremely involved in philanthropy. Uh, He's building a school in Akron, Ohio on July 30th. He does lots of other things to give back to the community. He already has, as I mentioned, uninterrupted, had a percentage ownership of Beats, has a pizza franchise. He's involved in lots of different things off the court. He wants to be a big-time businessman, media mogul, all that combined. And the most successful NBA player after their career at doing all those things is Magic Johnson. And not only that, but Magic Johnson is one of the most revered figures in NBA history. And him heading one of the most decorated, I guess, legacy franchises in the Lakers, I get it all. It makes sense. Um, does that mean that it's the best basketball decision? Absolutely not, because it wasn't at all. Um, like, let's just get right into it in a basketball sense. Let's analyze it that way. So, look, you're going to the same conference as the Golden State Warriors, one of the best teams, if not the best team of all time, who, as we'll get into later, just added the best center in the NBA to their team. And although they lost Trevor Ariza, you're going to the same conference as the Houston Rockets, who were the best team in the NBA in the regular season last year. That consecutive years to the finals record that Bill Russell held that LeBron was closing in on, obviously, he will not break. And if you ask me, I don't think he is ever going to win a championship the rest of his career. So in that strict sense, of course, it is not the correct decision. Um, but since that is sort of done with. Let's get into his fit on the team, players around him, how the Lakers can build and surround him correctly, and let's discuss their, let's go call them perplexing moves to surround him so far. Um, point blank, the team building around him so far has been really weird. Lance Stevenson and LeBron, Lance Stevenson plays LeBron harder and more determined and more tenacious than any player in the NBA. And, you know, with the blowing in his ear when he was on Miami to the play this past year in the playoffs where they had the, uh, they both had the ball at the same time and he basically wrestled LeBron to the ground and then afterwards came up holding the ball in the air to incite the crowd, you know. On the outside, you would think, okay, this guy, LeBron may think this guy's nuts. He may be, he may think he's a pain in the ass. But by way of this signing, LeBron obviously sees or has a little bit of respect for Lance. He realizes how hard he gets after it, how tenacious he is. So maybe there's mutual respect there. But Lance Stevenson is a guy who does not shoot well from three. He's a 30% three-point shooter. He's the type of guy who gets the balls in his hands and he dribbles around and does a bunch of weird stuff and kind of dribbles, 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 dribbles and doesn't end up getting a good shot out of it. Rajon Rondo, signed for one year for nine mil. Forcing them to renounce Julius Randle. I had floated the idea on my Twitter, at BradClear underscore, that he would have been a good, I guess, second unit point guard, I guess. Which would have been fine. Like, if LeBron is off the court, Rondo is the perfect guy to lead that second unit and quarterback it. But, Rajon Rondo cannot play on the court at the same time as LeBron James. Obviously, LeBron thinks a lot of them. There's been quotes 
from LeBron about Rondo, talking about how smart Rondo is and all of that. But even though playoff Rondo is, is a thing, as we saw this past year with New Orleans, Rajon Rondo does not shoot the ball. Rajon Rondo does not play defense. When you're on a team with LeBron James, the way that this works and the way that LeBron is accentuated to the greatest extent is LeBron is able to operate as he does offensively. Drive, kick out the ball, be able to iso from the perimeter and have only one defender on him because they have to respect the three-point shooting around him. LeBron is able to thrive because he is surrounded by perimeter shooting. And Lance Stevenson and Rajon Rondo obviously do not offer that. Those two guys, to be effective on the offensive end, because Rondo is nothing on the defensive end, and Stevenson, he'll get in people's heads, he'll play hard, he'll be fine. But offensively, those guys need the ball in their hands to be any sort of effective. Then we look at them signing JaVale McGee. And I think this JaVale McGee signing is a direct product of this NBA Finals that we just saw um, in June. When JaVale McGee played, he played in, like not a ton of minutes, but he played like 15 minutes here and there each game. I remember watching and saying, you know, JaVale is playing great. He's making a difference defensively, protecting the rim. He's rebounding well. And when the ball is thrown to him on a lob or just an open pass and he has to finish at the rim with a dunk or whatever, he's really, really contributing. He played fantastic. And I think with the Lakers looking for a minimum center, not having any rim protector whatsoever on that team besides him, I think LeBron said, hey, JaVale played really good in the finals. You know, let's give him a shot. I'm not saying LeBron is quarterback in the moves here, but there is obvious, as Ramona Shelburne said, there's an obvious communication or understanding that LeBron is okay with all of these moves being made. So, along with JaVale McGee being able to be your only rim protector, he's also JaVale McGee. The Shaq and a fool legend. The guy who does dumb, stupid shit all the time. He's a goof. You added Contavious Caldwell Pope for 12 mil. Um, shout out to LeBron for essentially being able to get Contavious Caldwell Pope um, was 16 mil last year and then 12 mil this year. Or it was maybe even 18 mil last year. Two years for 30 mil or so because he's a, um, a client of Clutch Sports, a goodwill gesture last year. And then for this year, the only guy who can somewhat shoot from the perimeter on that team around LeBron. So, shout out to that. But, Contavious Caldwell Pope, fine signing. 12 mil for a year. He's going to be their best three-point shooter on the team. Um, but, in building this team, what they've done is they've made themselves LeBron surrounded by the all-NBA meme team. Like, the meme ability of this team is ridiculous. LeVar Ball, JaVale McGee, Lance Stevenson, Rondo. Not only is it meme team... There is a ton, or are a ton, of combustible personalities on this team. What's going to happen if Rondo gets a lot of minutes over Lonzo? What, what is LeVar Ball going to say? That would be a stupid decision to give more minutes to Rajon Rondo than Lonzo. But nonetheless, LeVar Ball is going to go nuts because of that. What happens when Lance Stevenson waves off LeBron because Lance wants to do an ISO on his own and dribbles, 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 gets shots out of nowhere, or gets terrible shots that go nowhere. What's going to happen when JaVale McGee does something incredibly stupid and dumb in a crucial part of a game? What's going to happen when all of these personalities, goofs, craziness is thrown together? How is Luke Walton going to be able to clean up this mess? How much damage control is Magic Johnson going to have to do? How can LeBron, most, most importantly, how can LeBron thrive to the fullest extent with the personnel around him? There's no shooting around him. And there's a ton of potential for dysfunction, train wreck, and chaos around him. Now, there is good around him. Brandon Ingram is awesome. I loved how he showed flashes and progressed this past year. As a mini-me Kevin Durant, I totally see it. I think he's going to be great. Lonzo Ball. I know there's the whole stigma with LeVar. Lonzo Ball is a good point guard. He's heady. He's smart. He's great basketball IQ. Makes good decisions. He's an elite passer with great court vision. And for a guard, has great size and great rebounding ability. Obviously, he cannot shoot the ball. 
even still, a true point guard with LeBron, if you fill in the other spots with the correct amount of shooting, can work. But you look at this roster as composed right now. Lonzo, Rondo, Pope, or Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Josh Hart, Lance Stevenson, LeBron, Lawal Dang, Brandon Ingram, JaVale McGee, Avika Zubak, Moritz Wagner. Something that's funny in all of this is that Lawal Dang, who they have been trying like hell to get rid of because of his bloated contract, he's in a position now, depending on what they do with their roster moves, which I'll get into next, he could potentially be someone who has to be relied on not to a great extent, but for, you know, to play 10-15 minutes a game to give a scoring punch at the tweener spot off of the bench. He may be relied on to do that. Um, I just I just don't like renouncing Julius Randle to sign Rajon Rondo for nine mil a year, a figure that no one else was going to get near to. I don't like surrounding LeBron with guys who cannot shoot the ball. They have three roster spots remaining. I talked about the Oklahoma City Thunder. I mentioned them briefly in the beginning. Because of that now $300 million combined luxury tax and payroll, stretching Carmelo Anthony saves them al- saves them almost $100 million. He is going to get stretched. And when that does, I'm not even going to say if. I'm going to say when. He's going to end up on the Lakers. So... Assuming that happens, you have two more roster spots. Um, I had sort of floated on Twitter. I was talking uh, the other night about guys who I thought would have been good to add to the team or to the Lakers. And I came up with Seth Curry, who just signed with Portland on a two-year deal for $2.75 million a year, the player option for the second year. Obviously, he was out this whole past year, but as a scoring guard off the bench, would have been perfect for the Lakers. I said Rondo, they signed him, and Carmelo, as I said, will eventually come. If they want to get another big, I don't see that because I think what's going to end up happening is with having LeBron and Brandon Ingram, you're going to have to, even if it's not the best defensive spot for him, you're going to end up playing Kuzma a lot at the five because you'll have LeBron at the four, Ingram at the three, Um, and then obviously Pope or Harder Stevenson at the two, and then Lonzo or Rondo at the one, should be Lonzo. But I think that's what's going to happen a lot. So McGee, Zubak, and Wagner, I think you're fine with just having those three guys as your bigs. But if they wanted to add another, I think someone like Trevor Booker would be a good add in the sense of a heady, hustling vet who plays good defense, rebounds, and plays really hard. I think he'd be great for them. And then going along with shooting, I think at the two-guard spot, I think they need a guy who's just a pure sniper from three. And... The best one out there right now is Wayne Ellington. I think he'd be great for them or the Sixers or any, lots of other teams that are still out there looking uh, for lower price free agents. I think just as a pure catch-and-shoot guy with LeBron on the court, Ellington is perfect to have around LeBron. Even Nick Young. I think Nick Young is perfect to have around LeBron. Um, and if we want to just go full-on meme with this team, who better to add than Swaggy P? And then... Another tweener guy, and again, this would add to the memeability of the team, but after the past year he just had with the Knicks, I think Michael Beasley would not be a bad player to add for this team either. Just as a guy, um, a tweener forward who can just score or be a scoring-minded player who can shoot threes, you just, based off of what they've added so far and what they have there, every one of the next three roster spots um, that they take up has to be someone who, if they're not a big, which they should not sign another big, they have to sign guys who can shoot from three. Even if they don't sign all these guys, uh, we saw last night in their summer league game against the Kings, uh, their second-round pick, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the last name, but small forward, Svee. Svee is a sniper from three. And if it comes to a point where they end up signing Carmelo and they don't really like the rest of the free agents available, using that little bit of space to sign Svee, just having a guy off the bench who can just straight shoot threes, uh, cheap, obviously, because he was a second-round pick. That's not a bad option at all either. But as far as the Lakers, strictly in a basketball sense, they need to add shooting because what's going to happen is with all of these mean guys and all these combustible elements, that lack of shooting is going to make life unbelievably hard for LeBron James. And if life gets hard for LeBron and the team does not succeed to the extent that they should, 
and there's no shooting around him and just nothing fits well, there's going to be a lot of chaos and it's going to be a train wreck and they have to avoid that. Um, speaking of the Lakers and other stars, let's just get right into Kawhi Leonard. At this point, I think the San Antonio Spurs are screwed because in theory, the two teams who really would have the greatest interest in trading for him, the Lakers and the Sixers, both are now disincentivized to give up a lot for him. Look at the Sixers. On Sunday, when they had that probably 2% chance of getting LeBron, if it had been a real possibility, they would have had the incentive to get Kawhi at all costs if it had gotten them LeBron. Obviously, now LeBron is not there. They're just going to run it back. They signed J.J. Redick. They still have 14 mil in space. I'll get into them later. They are not incentivized to trade a lot for Kawhi Leonard because what's the guarantee he stays? Sure, you could take on or take an opportunity like OKC did with Paul George and hope it checks out, but you're running a risk there. Like, because oh, San Antonio's price for Kawhi is enormous, and you're not going to pay that enormous price without an assurance that he is there long term. So, you look at it from the Sixer sense, they don't have an obligation to trade much for Kawhi Leonard. You look at the Lakers, the whole idea for this past week or so was that they have to trade for Kawhi Leonard because they're not going to get Paul George and they got to get another star in there so LeBron commits. They got LeBron now. They can approach the Kawhi Leonard trade not in the sense of, we have to get him, we have to get him, we need him next to LeBron, we won't get LeBron otherwise. They can, they can approach it in the sense of, all right, we like Kawhi, we know he'll sign with us long term, but we're not going to give too much, we're just going to do a straight, we're going to look at it from the viewpoint of just straight value and what is equal, or even in the sense of, we know we're going to get him next summer anyway, other teams are probably not even going to trade a lot to get him, so you may not like any other offers, so you may be stuck with him, and we'll just get him for free. So they can either look at it in the sense of, we're not going to give you that much because we know we're going to get him anyway which is a slippery slope because on one hand, you don't want to give up too much because you know you're going to get him, kind of like what the Knicks didn't do with Carmelo Anthony back in 2011 or whenever, yeah, 2011 or 2010, around then with Denver. Or you could look at it in the sense of, let's get him while we can now. The Spurs have no leverage. We can get a normal value-ridden trade to get him. You know, it's like at this point, uh, with assurances there long-term, Brandon Ingram and Kyle Kuzma, and a first-round pick. That's what I would give if I was the Lakers to get Kawhi. Because I don't have to go all out, you know, with Ingram, Kuzma, Hart, and two unprotected firsts. I can just say, look, you don't have leverage. This is our offer. This is a fair offer, which it is. Ingram, Kuzma, and a first at this point in time is a fair offer for Kawhi Leonard based on circumstances. That is the offer you present to the Spurs. If they don't take it, then the Spurs are going to really, really bet that they can get a better offer elsewhere, which I don't think is doable. The Boston Celtics have no reason to trade for Kawhi Leonard. They don't need to um, expend all of their assets on Kawhi when they have Tatum, Brown, and Hayward and really would like to hold those assets in the event that at some point in time, Anthony Davis, or since there's a little bit brewing in Minnesota with Carl uh, Anthony Towns, and even the Minnesota was willing to trade Carnathan Towns. That's what you hold your assets for. Or you just hold them in the event of like the Kings pick and get yourself a top five pick next year who's a top-notch player on a super cheap deal. They don't have the incentive to trade for Kawhi Leonard. I know the Los Angeles Clippers would love to trade for Kawhi Leonard. I'll get into them later. But simply put, they don't have enough to trade for Kawhi Leonard. The Spurs have no leverage at this point. And... They absolutely cannot go into this season with Kawhi Leonard on their roster. One, because it just creates a toxic situation and and just makes it even greater. And two, the longer you hold on to him, the more his value goes down. Because the longer you hold on to him, the closer he is to free agency which at this point, with no, under, with no other indications given, is going to be him going to the Lakers. So, it will be interesting to see what happens, but at this point, all leverage for the Spurs is gone. 
And let's move on here now. Let's get into the big story from last night. DeMarcus Cousins to the Golden State Warriors. When I got this tweet notification from Shams, um, I, the first words were DeMarcus Cousins. So I was like, oh, DeMarcus Cousins signed or whatever. And then I scrolled and then I read through the tweet and it said the Golden State Warriors. I screamed. I legitimately screamed. What? I can't. I can't. Re- yeah. Well, whatever. I can't repeat the rest of the words there. But I just screamed, you know, what the fuck? I'll, I'll repeat it. I don't care. I just screamed, what the fuck? Because at first, before I dove deep into it, you're getting the best center in the NBA on the Golden State Warriors. The best team of all time, arguably, adding the best center in the NBA. Their starting lineup is a literal all-star team. Curry, Thompson, Durant, Green, Cousins. I know Cousins is coming off the torn Achilles. Probably will not be back until January. And with him being on the Warriors, he has no reason to rush anything and can take his sweet time. But, if you look at this on a deeper level, this was entirely a product of circumstance. Those circumstances being, one, he got hurt this year. A torn Achilles for someone as big as DeMarcus Cousins um, and for someone who plays like DeMarcus Cousins could potentially make him a different player and he will never be the same again. That could be a potentially career-altering, debilitating injury. And then two, ooh, that voice crack there. And then number two, there was no market for him. Because teams capped themselves out in 2016 and the teams that had space that would have been interested in him already um, spent their available cap. I'm looking at Dallas here with DeAndre Jordan. He had no market. He said that the New Orleans Pelicans did not even make an offer to him and did not try to re-sign him. I know everyone floated, and I did to a great extent, the potential sign-in trade with Washington for Otto Porter, but... I guess at this point, with everything that's come out since the signing last night, there's no indication that Washington was even interested in that. And Washington doesn't even have a starting center on their team after trading Gortat. So you look at it in the sense that the only teams that could have signed him to big money, New Orleans, Dallas, Dallas had no cap left. New Orleans had no desire to keep him because they liked playing Davis at the five and liked Miritich, and now having Julius Randle next to him, which I'll get into later. So, he had no market besides a mid-level exception from a team, because everyone was capped out, no one was willing to devote long years or big money to him because they don't know what type of player he's going to be, and if they're joining a team on a mid-level exception, you may as well join the best team in the league. And I, I everyone crying out about... You know, how can the Warriors have all these guys and how is this fair, whatever. Like, yeah, it sucks. You know, they probably just ruined the NBA in the sense that, well, not probably, they ruined the NBA in that if it was 98% that they were going to win the title, now it's 100%. And if you're a competitive team, you know, like the Sixers, for example, why trade stuff for a star rental player when you know you have no shot of winning anything this year? It eliminates any chance even though that chance was slim, that the Golden State Warriors will not win the championship this year. And I also found it interesting that, you know, going off of the fact that there was no market for him, the other team that was mentioned as being the potential landing spot for Cousins, uh, with a mid-level exception, had he not signed with Golden State, was Boston. And that simply shows you, or further emphasizes the point I just made in that He had nowhere to go. Even the Lakers had no interest in signing DeMarcus Cousins. With it being, it had to have been known that DeMarcus Cousins, with New Orleans not having interest in keeping him, with all the other teams having eaten up their cap, the Lakers could have gotten him after signing LeBron before they used their cap space on Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Rajon Rondo, used the room exception on Lance Stevenson, the Lakers wanted DeMarcus Cousins, they could have had him. They obviously didn't. DeMarcus Cousins had no choice besides this. This was not DeMarcus Cousins saying, you know, 
oh, I'm going to chase a ring. I'm going to be all about myself and ruin the NBA. This was, I literally have no other place that I can go. I'm going to get the room exception. I'm going to get what I can. I'm going to go to a team where I have no pressure and expectation on me because my team is the best in the NBA. I can take as long as possible to get fully healthy, not have to come back early because the team is dependent on me. And if I thrive with the Golden State Warriors, I can go back on the free agency market next year in hopes of a max contract, or I could just stay long-term with the Golden State Warriors. It's a huge win for him. And on that sense, in the sense that they could keep him after this year, because now he's on the roster and they have his bird rights, this is a hell of a win for the Golden State Warriors. The best center in the NBA already added to this team? That's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And for me, I've never been on the whole, you know, the Warriors ruined the NBA, the NBA sucks because the Warriors are great and you know who's winning. But this move has me a little bit on that train now because... Come on, five All-Stars. It's unbelievable. It's ridiculous. And I'm really intrigued to see how he plays with them. I know he's not great defensively, and teams will like to argue that they're going to likely play Boston in the finals, or people will like to argue with them likely playing Boston in the finals. We saw this past playoffs how Al Horford took Joel Embiid, a fantastic defensive player, and exposed him by how he played You know, on the perimeter, moving all around, took him away from the basket that DeMarcus Cousins, a bad NBA defender, or bad defender, is going to get exposed just like that. But try switching on DeMarcus Cousins. Try being able to guard DeMarcus Cousins, an elite post player, an elite three-point shooter, a guy who can pass when you are surrounding him with Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green. And for what this does for the Warriors also is, I think you can look in a couple years when Draymond Green, if he makes, um, or if he wins Defensive Player of the Year, or makes an All NBA team, being eligible for that Supermax, if they are not comfortable with signing, re-signing Draymond Green for a Supermax contract, and Demarcus Cousins is fine and they re-sign him, Draymond Green is an integral part of that team. But even in losing him, you'd still have the best center in the NBA on your team which would mitigate and lessen the severity of losing Draymond Green. So this strengthens the Warriors as a team. It allows them at this point, they can withstand the loss of Draymond Green if that comes in a couple years. You know, will it happen? I don't know. Probably not. But in the event that it were to, they'd be able to go along without really missing a beat. And I, I just envision this team offensively, already unguardable, now it's just absurd because you're going to have to put, if you're playing them, I guess like Al Horford is your ideal guy to play against DeMarcus Cousins in that he can take him all around the court when he's on offense and when Cousins has the ball or when Warriors have the ball, he can move out onto the perimeter, guard him in the post also. But even still, it's just an unbelievable mismatch. It's an unbelievable team. How can you guard this team? You can't. All the perimeter shooting in the world, an elite interior presence that can also shoot it from the perimeter. It's ridiculous. I am so excited for this. Basically, what's going to end up happening... Actually, I'm excited to see... I'll, I'll rephrase that. I'm excited to see how they play. I'm not excited for them to literally dominate everyone, but I'm excited to see that how it all comes together how they mesh, and all that. Um, it's going to be funny because Cousins will not be playing until probably you know mid-late January. So it's the equivalent of maybe he may not even play until around the All-Star break. You know, who knows? Maybe they take, you know, if he's 90%, you know, they're Golden State Warriors. May as well get him to 100. You bring him back after the All-Star break. You get DeMarcus Cousins added to your team for the second half of the season. You know, that's a hell of an addition. You know, all these teams... They sign veterans who get bought out in the later part of the year, or they sign guys to a bunch of 10 days. The Warriors are going to be bringing in DeMarcus Cousins. Let that sink in there. That's enough about Boogie. Let's go on to some other teams who have made moves, uh, teams who still have cap to spend, players who are still available, and signings that I've liked. Let's go to Oklahoma City Thunder here. Um, first off, 
it is such an incredible, massive accomplishment that they were able able to keep Paul George. Um, with a guy who's from California being dead set on going to the Lakers, and even with losing in the first round, your winning culture, your star players, and your whole team atmosphere and environment convinced him to stay. That's fantastic. Initially, when they said it was a four for one thirty-seven million dollar deal. Uh, I was perplexed because after two years, he could have just signed a four-year, two hundred or five-year, two hundred twenty million dollar deal, and essentially it would have been a two-year deal for around sixty-four mil, and then it would have been five years for two twenty. So you'd have had a seven-year deal for around two hundred eighty-five to two hundred ninety million dollars. Then it got clarified by Woj that that um, ability to restructure it into a supermax after two years is there. So not only is Paul George staying in OKC, but he's going to get massively paid. He's going to basically get almost $300 million over the course of the next seven years. And I think this is awesome for the NBA um, because we've seen LeBron go to the Lakers, a team who has the most massive margin of error that there is, or margin for error that there is. OKC does not have that margin of error. For error, frankly, they're in the smallest market in the NBA. They had to do everything perfectly to convince Paul George that that was the right place for him long-term to be in the playoffs every year and to win. And they did, which is commendable. Will they be a championship team? Obviously not because they're in the West with Golden State and Golden State's going to dominate and probably win the next three championships at least. But keeping Paul George is such a coup for this team. It's so great for the league. And I think I really... I know Paul George did not show up to the greatest extent in the playoffs against Utah, to put it mildly, but having Russell Westbrook and Paul George, having those two stars, having Steven Adams, and adding to this team as I'll get into now, you know, OKC was the fifth best team in the West last year. They're probably going to be in that same boat again this year. And uh, Jeremy Grant, they re-signed him for three years for 27 mil. I love Jeremy Grant. He's a guy who's perfect for OKC. OKC loves those super athletic guys who can jump out of the gym, play above the rim, and can play really good defensively. Grant can play, really can play. You can play him at the 3, 4, or 5. Uh, his shooting is not the greatest, but it has improved. And he's super athletic and plays above the rim. You can throw lobs to him, whatever. Perfect for them. I love that they kept him. But if we want to talk about signings, They've made, even with signing Paul George and keeping Jeremy Grant, the best signing that OKC made, or not the best, but the one that really caught my eye, was Nerlens Noel on a minimum contract with a player option for the second year. Nerlens Noel's tenure in Dallas, put it mildly, was an absolute disaster. He's a guy who, you know, if there was a victim of the process, it was him. And he's a guy who has shown the flashes of being an elite NBA defender, a guy who can protect the rim uh, amongst the best of any other rim protector in the NBA, a guy who, for a big man, gets an ungodly amount of steals, a guy who rebounds the ball well, and when given the chance on a lob or just open and just to finish at the rim, he can do that. Putting him on Oklahoma City, he is in a structured, incredibly defined role. Steven Adams is your guy there at the center, so when he's off the court... All Nerlens Noel has to do is be a carbon copy of Steven Adams for 15 to 20 minutes a game. He's got to play defense. He's got to rebound. He's got to catch lobs when they're thrown to him. Or if he's wide open, just finish, finish at the rim with a dunk. You can't ask Noel to do too much, and you can't put him in a role where it's really not defined and unstructured. Like, for example, Washington, right? Washington was interested in him, and he would have been the best center on that team, could have started. But where's the structure in that role with him at that position? It's not there. For Noel to be put in a system like OKC, where he has such defined um, needs of what he needs to do that fit him as a player, I think it's the perfect situation for him. And for Oklahoma City, I know he's, I know Nerlens Noel has not had, did not have, okay, put it blankly, he had a terrible year last year and got benched for most of the season. But that talent defensively is there. If I'm looking for a backup center who does sort of the same thing that Steven Adams does, Nerlens Noel is perfect, and I got him on a minimum contract. That's fantastic. I think this is one of the best signings of the offseason so far. You look at him, you look at how they play, 
You know, even last year they played Jeremy Grant a little bit at the five when they wanted to get a little uh, smaller and athletic. Put Nerlens Noel. I, I it won't do a lot offensively, but put Nerlens Noel and Jeremy Grant on the court in the front court as your bench unit. Who's scoring? I love the signing for Nerlens Noel. I think it's going to rejuvenate his entire career. I think for OKC, it's a great shot to take. Look at the available options out there. Does anyone offer the potential return on the low investment they made like Nerlens Noel does? No, no one does. And as I mentioned, that strict defined role is what's going to allow him to thrive to the fullest extent with them. So I love that signing uh, with Nerlens Noel. And going back to Carmelo, I mentioned him in talking uh, about the Lakers. He's getting stretched. The problem with Carmelo, aside from the obvious contract uh, that is just absurd at this point, the problem with Carmelo is, and Dwayne Wade has done this, and that is that at this point in your career, you have to realize what type of player you are. You have to realize you are not the player from 10 years ago who was one of the league stars and was an obvious all-star every year and a starting player. His unwavering commitment to having to be a starter, his inability to realize that he is basically washed, that is something that even without that bad contract, he's not a guy you want on this team. And look at Dwayne Wade, right? Dwayne Wade on Cleveland realized, hey, I'm not the player I once was. I'm a little bit washed. I'm going to go take a small bench roll in the Cavs, ended up in Miami, took a greater bench roll, but still a bench player who is, for all intents and purposes, a role player. Carmelo still has the mindset that he is a featured player on an NBA team. He's got to shake that. His inability to do that, combined with his $28 million salary this year, he's got to go, and he will. That $300 million, at this point, it is $300 million combined in payroll and luxury tax. Stretching Carmelo would save uh, nearly $100 million off of that. For a small market team like Oklahoma City, combined with the fact that Carmelo really doesn't add anything to the team and is more of a hindrance based off of his, I guess, selfishness at this point, see you bye. It's going to be really interesting to see how Carmelo does when I inevitably expect him to sign with the Lakers uh, to be with LeBron. Um, But for Oklahoma City, I like what they're doing. I love the signing of Nerlens Noel. I love them keeping Jeremy Grant. And obviously, it is a fantastic achievement to keep Paul George. Two signings to me that really stood out so far in free agency. The first was Ed Davis signing for one year, 4.4 mil with the Brooklyn Nets. Ed Davis is awesome. And he's probably one of my favorite players in the league just for the sole purpose that there is no more, I guess, dependable, consistent, productive backup center than Ed Davis. He is the prototype for a backup center. You look at metrics in the past couple of years, he has been the most productive backup center in the NBA. Plays defense, rebounds, can do a little bit offensively. Perfect. And I know Portland wanted to give more minutes to Zach Collins at the center spot behind Nurkic. But the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, they always make the right signing. They always make the right trade. They always make the right draft pick in the 20s of the first round. They nail it every single time. And now they have Ed Davis to play behind, mentor, and be a great serviceable, dependable backup to a pick that they hit on last year in the first round in Jared Allen, who I am an enormous fan of. What a signing. There are so many teams in the league who could have used someone like Ed Davis. And for Brooklyn to get him at 4.4 mil for one year, that's a great deal, both in terms of salary and only it being a one-year deal. Putting him behind Jarrett Allen, who is going to be in his second year, someone who showed a lot of talent last year, who's going to keep getting better. You put someone who's a vet in the league, who's been really, really dependable and serviceable for such a long time, that is going to help Jarrett Allen. That's going to help the team as a whole, this young team that's sort of, that they've cultivated, that's coming together now with their draft picks coming and cap space coming in uh, 2019-2020. It's all on the rise for the Brooklyn Nets, and it's all a product of Sean Marks building that culture, Kenny Atkinson building that culture, and that front office, as I said, led by Sean Marks, consistently making the right picks, right trades, and right moves. 
You got the best backup center potentially in the NBA on your team for 4.4 mil for one year when tons of other teams would have loved to have gotten him. Win, win, win. I love this signing. And to me, I, I'm, I wish that the Sixers made that signing. I wish that plenty of other teams had made that signing because that is arguably, in my opinion, this might sound crazy, I think this might be the best signing so far for agency. Perfect signing. Another signing I really liked will go uh, from Brooklyn to New York. We'll go over the bridge. Mario Hizonia. I look at Mario Hizonia, and I look at it as the Knicks' this year's version of signing Tim Hardaway because the year before the Knicks, or the preceding year to the summer where the Knicks signed Tim Hardaway last year, Tim Hardaway had a great year, had his best year, had a very strong year, and really showed a lot after having a few, you know, down subpar years. He showed that flashes of being the player that everyone thought he was always supposed to be. And the Knicks saw that, they took advantage of it, and they signed him long term. Last year with Mario Hizonia, you know, he had had a few pretty awful years, bust-worthy years. This past year, comparatively, he had a very strong season. Became a super dependable scorer off the bench. Played a little bit of small forward. Played a little bit of super super small four. He had a year where he blossomed. You know, is he anything like this amazing starting quality player? No, but as a dependable, not dependable, but as a go-to bench scorer, he was fantastic last year. And it was reported there were a lot of teams on the, uh, high after Mario Hazonia and for the Knicks to get him on a one-year deal for 6.5 mil, where they're obviously preserving cap for that 2019 free agency to sign Kyrie Irving or someone else, taking chances on guys who have shown flashes who could potentially be long-term guys. And really, in this what is going to end up being you know, a year where they're going to be one of the bottom three teams in the league because they won't play Porzingis all year, <clears throat> Paul Zing- Porzingis all year, this signing is perfect. If he sucks, whatever. It's a one-year deal, and you cut your losses. If he's good and plays like he did last year off the bench as a consistent bench scorer, then you have someone you can keep around for the long term. A guy who can play a couple positions, can shoot the ball, and it's just a straight score. And to get him on a one-year deal when there are other teams interested in him, to me, that's pretty impressive. But this is just, in my mind, as soon as I saw that they signed him, I said, this is this year's version of Tim Hardaway. A guy who really stepped up after a few years of disappointment, and the Knicks capitalized on it. For the situation that they're in, how they're going to move forward, I love this signing for them. I think he's going to continue to be that consistent uh, scoring threat off the bench that he was last year for Orlando or became with Orlando and improved. So potentially they could have just gotten themselves a long-term bench piece uh, for years down the line. And they got him 6.5 mil relatively. That's not that much. So big fan of this signing. Shout out to the Knicks and Mario Hizonia. Let's move on to Julius Randle here. Uh, mentioned earlier, Obviously, he was renounced by the Lakers so that they could sign Rajon Rondo. Signed almost immediately with the Pelicans, a two-year deal for 18 mil, uh, player option on that second year. Julius Randle is awesome. Zach Lowe loves to say uh, that Julius Randle Island is a thing, or Randle Hill, I'm not sure which one it is. I am an inhabitant of whichever one it is. I am all in on Julius Randle and have been for some time. Sure, he's 6'9", he's not 6'10", or 6'11", but he's athletic, and he can score, and he can play hard defense, and he can rebound. He does it all. And he plays at a very solid level, and he plays with a lot of heart and hustle. This is a very productive, consistent, solid player. And he's still young, very young. And to get him on only 9 mil a year for, well, if he declines his option only one year, but on one or two years, fantastic. I really like when New Orleans plays Anthony Davis at the five, and they put a solid power forward next to him. Obviously, we saw it in the playoffs with Miritich, but for years, they had played him at the four, and they had had guys like Omer Ashik, uh, Alexis Ejacinka, uh Mecca Ogafor for a little bit last year playing next to him. Obviously, with DeMarcus Cousins, it was fine because DeMarcus Cousins is DeMarcus Cousins, but Anthony Davis, if he does not have you know, what is the best center in the NBA next to him and DeMarcus Cousins on his team... Anthony Davis should be a five. And I love 
having Miritich or Randall next to him. I think, you know, Miritich as your stretch four type who can shoot from three and is just a go-to scorer, and Randall as a guy who can basically do it all, um, is perfect in a power forward role. I think the combination, whether it's Davis and Randall, whether it's Davis and Miritich, I really like it. And we look at the Pelicans this past year in the playoffs, destroyed Portland. Essentially, you take that team, you replace Rajon Rondo, who was a big part of that, but you replace Rajon Rondo with Alfred Payton, uh, a slight downgrade, but not much, and you add Julius Randle. You're basically taking what is the same team, and you added Julius Randle, who's a perfect front court partner for Anthony Davis. There's no reason that the Pelicans can't be um, top five in the West for maybe six at the worst. At worst, they would be six. I could see them being up to three. Three, four, five, or six seed in the West, that's definitely attainable for New Orleans. Having Davis strictly in there at the five, you can do, um, you can just put, let's say you wanted to go crazy with scoring. You could put Davis at five, Miritich at the four, you have Solomon Hill, Etuan, Etuan Moore, and Drew Holiday. They're starting five. Whether it's Miritich or Randall at the four, you'd have Anthony Davis at the five, Drew Holiday at the two, Albert Payton at the one, um, and then Etuan Moore at the three. Again, that's a very solid team. We saw Drew Holiday last year had an absolute monster season. Played a lot of two with Rondo at the one. You know, hopefully that continues. But Drew Holiday last year, he did everything. It was an almost like if the NBA's guards or the the quality of guards in the NBA was not so deep and so talented, Drew Holiday in my mind was a borderline All NBA third team player last year. Great tenacious defense on both ones and twos. Unbelievable scoring, rebounded, passed. He did absolutely everything that there could be to do for a two or a one on the court last year. So replicating that with putting Alfred Payton at the one, sort of similar to Rajon Rondo in that it's a pass-first guy who doesn't really shoot the ball, but he has a little bit more size, so you're kind of replicating that. I think Julius Randle fits perfectly with Anthony Davis. I'm very excited for what New Orleans does this year. And I think this signing of Randall is one of the best signings that we've seen so far in free agency and could end up being an enormous factor for New Orleans as this season uh, comes along and continues and goes down the line. Even if he has a great year and opts out, New Orleans, having him on the roster, having those bird rights to keep him, he's the perfect front court partner for Anthony Davis. And more than anything else for New Orleans matters is that you have to keep Anthony Davis happy while winning. If you put someone next to Anthony Davis, who, as Woj said, Anthony Davis recruited him hard, and if he fits alongside Anthony Davis, as I and many others envision he will, you're making Anthony Davis happy, and you're increasing your chances of winning. It's a win-win all around. So this next signing, I guess it'll turn more into a signing and the team as a whole. One sign I want to touch on is Avery Bradley. Avery Bradley last night, uh, two-year deal for 25 mil total with the Clippers. Um, that second, that full contract is guaranteed. No partial guarantees in the second year. No non-guaranteed second year. I like Avery Bradley. I think he's the prototype um, defensive-minded two-role player. But 12.5 mil is a bit of a steep figure. Um, and it being... A two-year deal rather than being a one-year deal with an option or uh, maybe a partial guarantee in the second year or a non-guaranteed second year. That's a bit much because no one else was coming to that price to get Avery Bradley. No one had the cap to do it, and if they did, they weren't going to use it. And the Pelicans, obviously having those bird rights, could use that to sign him to whatever figure they deemed fit, but they did not need to go that high for him. But even still, I think he, I love Avery Bradley. I think he's a guy who could fit on almost every team in the NBA. Can shoot a little bit, plays great, tenacious defense. He's the perfect role player. And I guess now I'll expand it towards the Clippers as a whole. I absolutely love what the Clippers are doing right now as far as their situation in the present, what they're going for long-term and in the future. They have this situation now where they have this straddling of young guys, like top-notch, highly useful role players and long-term flexibility and optionality. 
The only issue I see um, in the immediate future, I guess this year, they have a glut of guards on this team. Look at the two guard spots alone. Right now, they have 16 guys. Um, well, if we're factoring in them inevitably dropping C.J. Williams, who's completely non-guaranteed, and them re-signing Montrezl Harrell, which is inevitable, they have 16 guys on the team. At the point guard spot, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Patrick Beverly, Jawan Evans, and Milos Teodosic. At the shooting guard spot, Lou Williams, Avery Bradley, Jerome Robinson, Sundarius Thornwell. It's eight guys right there out of your 15 or I guess now it's 16, will become 15, at the guard spot. There is too many guards on this team. Based on it being a non-guaranteed salary for the coming year, I kind of think the odd man out is going to be Tay Dosich because we look at the point guard spot, you know, Patrick Beverly is a starting quality player. Shea Gilgis-Alexander was their prize pick in the lottery this year. They moved up one spot, gave up two seconds to get him. They picked Jerome Robinson in the lottery this year. Lou Williams has signed uh, two year, or he's got two guaranteed years at eight mil and then a non-guaranteed third year, but he's the sixth man of the year. You have Avery Bradley, as I just mentioned, as the perfect defensive-minded um, shooting guard role player at that point guard spot. Gilgis Alexander, Beverly will get big minutes. You can slide Williams over there if you want, and Jawan Evans can play there as well. I love Tay Dosich. He is awesome. I think he can contribute to a plethora of teams in the league. The Clippers just probably don't need him right now. They just don't. Um, but moving away from that, the Clippers have themselves set up where that, look, they're not going to be a playoff team this year, but at the same time, they're balancing the future and the present whilst remaining competitive. They have the ability to entertain the idea of trading for any star that comes onto the market. They have the ability to go after top free agents in 2019 and 20. And if a player wants to come to Los Angeles and the Lakers don't have the ability to sign another star um, for whatever reason, if they've got another star and trade a free agency, the Clippers are that destination. And they'll have young players to build around, or young players to complement those stars coming in. So in the sense of what they're building towards, I think they're in a great spot. And you look at the players on this team too. Like, Shai Gilgis-Alexander, a big guard, huge wingspan, great playmaking ability whose shooting will come along. Lou Williams, the best sixth man in the NBA. Patrick Beverly, a tenacious pest point guard who gets on the other team's best uh, perimeter player. And it's just a guy who plays his ass off every single game. He's a guy you want on your team. Uh, Jerome Robinson, again, I know my stance on this is that they should have picked Michael Porter, but he's there now, and he's a guy who can, if we're looking at him being the best he can be, he's a guy who can just get the ball and score in droves offensively. Tobias Harris is awesome. He's a guy, his contract comes up after this year. If they don't trade him for a star, they're keeping him long term. Tobias Harris is one of the best tweener scorers there is in the league. Uh, Montrezl Harrell, he emerged last year. He's a guy who I really, really like. At that center spot, you have two solid vets, Boban, Gortat, and then other guys on the team. You know, Wesley Johnson, Sam Decker. Mike Scott was an under-the-radar stretch four they just signed the other day. I think he's a guy who a lot of teams could have used. I don't think a lot of fanfare has gone to that signing. But under the radar, it's a very high-quality signing. The only, I guess, contractual blemish on this team is Gallinari making over 20 mil this year and next. Um, When he's healthy, he is such a useful player. But in one season, how many games can you depend on him to play? 55? So outside of Gallinari, I love their roster composition. I love what they're going for long term. And even though, well, let's put it this way. When you're straddling the present and the future, keeping options and flexibility open, you may run into the um, the unfortunate realization that you're going to be stuck in the middle because you'll be in the lottery but towards the back end, so you won't be able to add a top-notch elite young player, but you won't be able to add high-quality... Um, well, no, you won't be able to add top-notch elite young players while the players currently on your team 
are very, very solid and super useful, but no one that's like extraordinary. So you end up around 12, 13 in the lottery year in and year out. You don't get any stars and ultimately you end up just stuck in the middle. That's the one thing they have to watch out for. Is that what's going to happen with them? I don't know, but they have to watch out for that. But sans that, I think they have a strong chance of being able to land a star, whether it's in free agency or trade. I like Shad Gilgis-Alexander. I think he'll uh, develop long-term into a very, very good NBA point guard. Moving forward, long-term on the books, you know, you have Lou Williams for two years. Gallinari's big contract for two years. Avery Bradley for two years. If he's not traded, Tobias Harris will be re-signed. Resign Montrezl Harrell. So you don't have, outside of Gallinari, you don't have much, like, enormous, significant money on your books moving forward. The ability to remain competitive, you know, a lot of people are writing them off as being in the tier of Dallas or Phoenix, in that second to last tier in the West, right above Sacramento. I don't think they're in that tier. I think they're in the same tier as teams like Denver, um, Portland, in that sort of 8-9-ish to nine-ish range. But at the same time, I would put those teams as high as better teams than them for sure. But still, they're going to be somewhat competitive. They're going to be a hard team to play. Like when you come up in the schedule and you're playing the Clippers, it's one of those teams that are just going to play you super hard. You're going to play tena- they're going to play tenacious against you. It's not going to be an easy game. That's one of those games you have to grind it out. It's going to be a grueling hard game. I love what they're doing. Love what they're moving towards. Love where they're at right now. And I think bright things are coming for them. As far as Avery Bradley, I like that they kept him. If nothing else, and they want to trade for a star, his contract, 12.5 mil for a useful two-guard who can play defense or be traded once he's traded to whatever team, that is your salary matcher for a trade for a star. No one's taking Gallinari unless you were trading him next year in his expiring contract. Avery Bradley could be useful to whatever team he's traded for or could be traded past that point if he gets traded to another team. So as far as being the big salary to match salary and potential trades for a star, if that's their long-term idea, I think it's a good signing. Even if it's not, having him in the fold as a guy who, if you want to play Lou Will at the one, you can put him at the two so you have that balance of offense and defense. You can play him next to Beverly and just shut down every other team's Uh, guard options, lots of options, lots of roster flexibility. Good thing they kept him in the fold. They just may have overpaid him a bit based off of what was available to him. But if the idea is to use him as a salary matcher in a trade, then it makes sense. Players remaining that I like that are still out there to be signed in free agency. Kyle O'Quinn. I mentioned earlier about Ed Davis being one of my favorite players that there is in the league being a perfect signing for so many teams. Kyle O'Quinn is the same thing. Dependable, perfect backup center. Rebounds, plays defense, can shoot threes a little bit. And he's just a tough guy who you cannot mess with. He's a dog. He's a guy who you bring him off the bench in a playoff game, he'll rough up the other team a little bit. You can't mess with him. He's a guy who is hard, a guy who is tough, a guy who, when you have him in your locker room, his intensity, his confidence, his toughness, um, his fierceness, that rubs off on other, on other players. The Sixers are looking for another backup big. No better option out there than Kyle O'Quinn. Wayne Ellington, I mentioned earlier for the Lakers. A dependable, top-notch sniper three-point shooter. Sixers, Lakers. Two teams that scream as suitors for Wayne Ellington. Another player still out there who I like is Nemanja Bielica. Uh, Minnesota signed Anthony Tolliver, so they renounced Bielica. Bielka's awesome. Again, a really just perfect backup tweener who can score. Whether it's the Sixers to replace Ilyasova, whether it's Utah, whether it's Indiana, I whether it's even the Lakers. There are lots of teams who use a player like that in Bielka. Even Shabazz Napier is someone who I look at not because of necessarily him as a player, like he's all right, but he's going to cost you nothing. And as a guy who can be at the end of the bench, he played minutes for Portland consistently last year. He's going to end up being signed to a super cheap contract. He is a useful player. Getting someone that cheap who can be kind of a scoring E guard 
who will probably can give you like 15 solid minutes a game. For that price, it's going to end up being a very good value. My overall takeaways, though, as we wrap up the pot here, Brad clear on after the final whistle. Free agency moved super fast this year. Not just in the sense of big-time free agents or lots of free agents signing in the first two days. We had 43 signings already. But cap space for teams that had it within one day, gone. Teams with the ability to sign guys who could determine uh, where top-notch players go in the market, gone. It wasn't just that players signed quick. It was that the options disappeared quick. So rather than it being a dragging, long free agency, this is going to be, you know, already it's been quick, and the guys that are still out there, you know, restricted free agents like Zach Levine or Jabari Parker, where's the market for them? It doesn't exist anymore. Marcus Smart's going to take that qualifying offer. There's no market for him either. So I think free agency, not just in signing, as I mentioned, but in terms of options and teams using up their space quickly, made free agency move super fast within two days. One other signing I'll touch on, Aaron Gordon with the Orlando Magic. Uh, On my Twitter, at BradClear underscore, I sort of proponed that Orlando... Having Jonathan Isaac, having Mo Bamba would have been better off using their space moving forward to keep options and flexibility open rather than signing Aaron Gordon. They did not heed to that. They ended up signing Gordon four years for 84 mil. Look, I can't complain about Aaron Gordon, the player. He completely revamped himself this past year. I think there's more upside to him. I think now that he's with Orlando, they have Steve Clifford as their head coach. I think there's even more to unlock with him. He's got great defensive upside, great size, can shoot well, athletic, can score. So there is upside to him. I just don't... The thing with me is that I just don't know how well he fits with uh, Jonathan Isaac and Mo Bamba as his frontcourt partners. You know, Jonathan Isaac's got to get that three-point shot to a super-duper consistent level. Uh, Defensively, at least, that'll be a nightmare because you have... I mean, you have Mo Bamba in the middle. We all know my love for Mo Bamba. Isaac is a beast defensively. can guard anyone from one to five at a high level. And then Aaron Gordon is athletic enough. He can guard threes and fours. I just think that it forces Isaac or Gordon to be a three or a four when both are more suited to consistently be a four. So I guess in the sense of just get all the talent in there and just figure it out later, it's fine. But to me, I just don't see that meshing well. But then again, Aaron Gordon's upside and talent may trump how that fit uh, may trump and supersede uh, fit. All right, so that's about an hour and seven minutes here of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. This is my deep dive into NBA free agency, uh, discussing and analyzing the big moves, signings I liked, and whatnot. Um, More shows coming. I'm trying to do one or two a week moving forward at this point. Um... So yeah, that was all for this episode of After the Final Whistle. Hope you enjoyed. Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to Mario Hizonia. Shout out to Ed Davis. Shout out to Kyle O'Quinn. Shout out to Nerlens Noel. I'm Brad Clear, host of After the Final Whistle. Keep tuning in here on podcast.com for more episodes of After the Final Whistle moving forward. And as always, goodbye and good night.